This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. On the morning of January 12, 1888, 19-year-old Nebraskan schoolteacher Edda Shattuck was in good spirits. The air around her was warm. She was whistling a hymn as she marched towards the Holt County train station. Edda had just quit her job at the local schoolhouse. She knew that teaching wasn't for her, and she was ready to be home to her family on their farm in Atkinson. It had been months since she'd seen them. All that was between them now was the two-mile walk to the train. As Etta hauled her suitcase along the dirt road, the sky above her darkened. She stopped humming mid-note as the low gray clouds blocked out the sun. The fields around her, which moments before looked bright and welcoming, now held the eerie and stifling dark of dusk. Etta turned around. Behind her, The houses that dotted the massive span of flat prairie had disappeared. A thick wall of icy gray vapor was approaching, swallowing farmland in its wake. Etta dropped her luggage. She didn't know which direction to run, but it didn't matter. The blizzard was almost upon her. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Tim. Every Thursday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. 
This is our second of two episodes on the Children's Blizzard, a record-breaking storm in 1888 that devastated the prairies in the Midwestern United States. The blizzard claimed hundreds of lives in the Dakota Territory, many of whom were children. Last week, we outlined what caused the settlers to move to the dangerous and frozen tundra of the Midwestern Plains. We also followed the birth of the blizzard and explored why officials failed to accurately predict the storm. This week, we'll follow the blizzard's path of destruction and explore how this tragedy could have been prevented. We'll delve into some of the lives it destroyed and the lasting effects still felt today. In the early morning of January 12, 1888, a balmy breeze rolled over the plains, reaching from Kansas to North Dakota. The humid shroud of air was over 40 degrees warmer than the average winter temperature in the region. This warm air was a gift. It was a chance for the Midwestern farmers to get some of the work done that they had been unable to accomplish in the bitter cold all winter. It gave their children a chance to get outside, run around, and return to school. That winter, many students hadn't been able to attend class for months due to frigid temperatures. Many of the settlers were recent immigrants to America. They prioritized school for their children, an opportunity they had never received themselves. As their children studied, the farmers worked to keep their families warm and fed. But as they went about their morning chores on January 12th, three lethal elements were bearing down on the hardworking families. In addition to the warm southern breeze coming from the Gulf of Mexico, a pool of freezing air in Canada was rolling south on the wind. These two weather fronts were being sucked into a third low-pressure system around the eastern slopes of the Rocky Mountains. The breeze from the Gulf lured the settlers into a false sense of security as it warmed the plains that morning. But when all three elements whirled together along the northwest edge of the Dakota Territory, a deadly blizzard was born. By 11 a.m. on the 12th, the massive icy storm was rushing to the southeast, heading right for the plains. Minnie Freeman, like many school teachers across the plains, was stunned when the storm approached her schoolhouse in Fullerton, Nebraska. She had been too busy teaching to notice the rapidly darkening sky. One teacher wrote, There was scarcely time to exclaim at the unusual appearance when the clouds struck us with awful violence, and in an instant the warm and quiet day was changed into a howling pandemonium of ice and snow. The wind howled through the prairies, creating a horrifying and deafening cacophony. Children huddled in their classrooms would never forget the sound of the gusts slamming farm tools, branches, and other objects hurtling into the sides of the schoolhouse. As the wall of white snow crept closer, entire buildings were coated in thick, impenetrable vapor. They couldn't see outside and had no way of knowing what would come next. The snow was thick and fine, like a dusting of flour. 
If anyone dared to venture outside, the flakes permeated every crack of their clothing within seconds. The danger only increased as the snow collected on the ground. The loose, powdery snow was easily swept into the 60-mile-per-hour winds, forming a blinding wall of white. Ninety-three miles away, in Holt County, Nebraska, Etta Shattuck was totally enveloped by the storm. The wind stole air from her lungs. Snow whipped into her eyes, making it excruciating to open them. She couldn't see the dirt path beneath her feet. She had lost the luggage she dropped moments ago, and the house she left ten minutes ago, which on a clear day could be seen from miles away, was invisible in the white horizon. If Etta walked back to the house, there was a good chance she would wander lost for hours. Then she remembered the barn. There was a fence surrounding the property, and the barn was only 15 feet past it. If she kept moving forward, she would reach the fence, and then she could follow it back to the barn. Confident in her plan, Etta wrapped her arms tight around herself, gritted her teeth, and continued her hymn. She was sure that if she had faith, she would live. But she couldn't see more than three meters ahead of her. She was blind and vulnerable. The blizzard was a whiteout. In whiteouts, downdrafts and snowfall are so thick, the ground becomes indiscernible from the sky. With the snow moving in every direction and the wind pushing towards the earth, people stuck in blizzards often experience vertigo. The sensation is claustrophobic and disorienting. Not only is a whiteout confusing, it's painful. Snow in this type of storm is suffocating. Each breath stings as ice crystals are pulled into the lungs. Between the breathing difficulties and the vertigo, it's difficult to get to shelter. And the longer a person spends in the storm, the more likely it is they'll develop hypothermia. When the body's temperature drops, it prevents the organs from functioning properly. The heart and respiratory systems can fail, leading to death. Even in milder cases of hypothermia, symptoms can include shivering, slurred speech, confusion, drowsiness, and fainting. In Groton, South Dakota, Eight-year-old Walter Allen was sitting at his desk, waiting for directions from his schoolteacher. It was 10.30 a.m., only moments after the blizzard struck. He couldn't see anything out the window through the flurry of snow. The storm struck the building with such force, Walter thought it might move the school off its cobblestone foundation. He stayed in his seat, urging his friends to do the same. Walter was the classroom leader, as the other children fretted, he tried to calm their nerves. Walter fidgeted with the little ornate perfume bottle he used to clean his chalkboard. It was an object of pride for him. It was the nicest bottle in his class. Now, it was the only thing he had to keep him calm in the midst of the raging storm. In the hall, the teachers debated what to do. If they sent Walter and his classmates home, there was a good chance they would get lost. But they didn't have enough firewood to heat the classroom for very long if they stayed. No matter what decision they made, they risked death. 
they decided it was best to try and get the kids home. The teachers told everyone to get their coats. Walter sprung from his seat. Distributing coats was one of his jobs. He rushed to the vestibule and handed them out in record time. Within 15 minutes, everyone was ready to head into the storm. But in those 15 minutes, the weather had steadily grown worse. The teachers threw the doors open and stepped into the storm, while the children waited in the doorway for the go-ahead. The second the teachers met the outside Arctic air, the snow and ice was so ferocious it felt like small bullets pelting their skin. An instructor at the Rosebud Indian Agency near the Nebraska-Dakota border wrote, Another teacher ventured a few yards out of the front door at its beginning and was near not getting back. The wind struck her with such violence as to bring her head down to her knees and take away her breath. She said she knew that if she fell, she would not get up again. To make matters worse, many students only had thin spring jackets more suited to that morning's warm breeze. The youngest children were practically toddlers, the oldest only 14. If they sent the kids out into the storm, they would surely get lost and freeze to death. They would have to stay put and wait for help. Luckily, a group of men from the town had organized a procession of horse-drawn sleighs to rescue children from the schools. They made it to Walter's school long before lunchtime. Walter made sure his row was orderly as they boarded the sleighs. He even waited until his classmates were all seated and accounted for before getting on the sleigh himself. At 11.30 a.m., the procession started its return to town. The horses moved slowly as everyone huddled together, faces down and away from the wind. All of a sudden, Walter remembered he had left his precious perfume bottle in the classroom. He knew the glass would crack in the cold. The small wood stove in the school wouldn't stay lit long enough to keep his prized trinkets safe. Without thought, Walter leaped from the sleigh and sprinted back to the school. He pocketed his bottle, ran down the hall, and stepped out into the cold. But the sleigh was nowhere in sight. Walter regretted his decision instantly. He tried to follow the sound of the horses, but could only hear the howling wind. Looking down for tracks, he only saw smooth, wind-blown snow. Walter sprinted in the direction he was sure the sleigh went. Within five seconds, the school behind him vanished, and the path in front of him was nothing but thick and suffocating snow. Over in Fullerton, Nebraska, the storm hit Minnie Freeman's schoolhouse at 11.30 a.m., the same time the sleigh left from Walter's school in South Dakota. Minnie had confidently made the decision to keep her 17 students inside the school, but she worried whether she'd made the right choice. As Minnie tried to calm her students' nerves, the door flew off its hinges, feathery snow poured in and the temperature in the room plummeted. Minnie and the older boys nailed the door up, locking themselves in. To Minnie, 
it felt like shutting themselves into a coffin. The school wasn't safe. Minnie had made the trek from her home to the school enough times for the route to be muscle memory. She wondered if they'd be better off at her house. The storm made the abrupt decision for her. A vicious blast of wind tore off part of the roof. Minnie tried to calm the kids with soft words as she wrapped them in their coats, although at this point, keeping anyone calm was a losing battle. According to some versions of the story, in a stroke of genius, Minnie looked around the classroom and scooped up a ball of twine. She used it to tie each student together in a line, one after the other. Once Minnie was confident the twine would hold, she scooped up the smallest child, held her head high, and marched the train confidently into the eye of the blizzard. Meanwhile, in Holt County, Nebraska, 19-year-old Etta Shattuck was still following the pasture fence, trying to find the barn in the blinding storm. She turned a corner of the fence, and suddenly she was walking into the wind again. She must have gone in a circle. Etta halted in her tracks. She stood shivering, debating what to do. The wind chill was a debilitating negative 25 degrees Fahrenheit, and her thoughts were coming to her sluggishly. Etta's slow thoughts were a symptom of hypothermia. If she didn't get out of the cold soon, her organs would start to fail. By this point, it was noon. Etta had been circling the pasture for an hour. Past the fence, there were plenty of houses on the way to the train station. She had a better chance of running into shelter there than searching the pasture any longer. Making her choice, Etta swung over the fence and wandered blindly into the whiteness. A little past noon in Lincoln, Nebraska, 11-year-old Lena Webeke was standing with an older boy in their newly abandoned schoolhouse. The other students had all taken the northern road back to their homes. Lena and this boy were the only two who lived to the south. The boy suggested they follow the road to avoid getting lost. But Mr. Webeke had taught Lena that the quickest way to their house was through the ravine. The boy tried to sway her, but Lena was stubborn. And she spoke little English since she was raised in a German home. The argument was going nowhere fast. Not wanting to waste any more time, the boy abandoned Lena and marched off down the road. Lena hurried in the direction of the ravine. But two minutes into her walk, she realized that finding anything in the storm was impossible. The teacher had said there was enough firewood in the school to last until morning. She would have to wait there. But turning back, Lena couldn't make out the school. She was in the worst storm she had ever seen, afraid and alone. When we come back, the settlers get desperate in the eye of the storm. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. 
On January 12, 1888, the Midwestern United States was in the middle of the worst blizzard the area had ever experienced. Temperatures were an average of negative 25 degrees Fahrenheit, and the wind speed was up to 60 miles per hour. In Groton, South Dakota, eight-year-old Walter Allen was wandering through the snow alone. He had abandoned the sleigh that would have taken him safely home in favor of rescuing his prized perfume bottle from the schoolhouse. The wind whipped snow against his cheeks so hard that Walter felt as if arrows were piercing his skin. Snow pelted into his eyes, making it hard to keep them open. Trying to rub the snow from his eyes made them sting even more. Walter started crying, and the tears froze his eyes shut. Once Walter stopped fidgeting with his eyes, the rest of his face covered up with ice crystals too. Soon, there were only holes around his nostrils and mouth. Each breath of snow-filled air stung his throat. He found it hard to stand against the wind, but he fought his hardest. When it finally knocked his legs out from under him, Walter took a moment to catch his breath on the ground. He felt so tired. A warmth spread through Walter's body. It was comforting down there. He decided that a nap would revitalize him. When he woke, he thought he would have enough strength to fight the howling winds once more. He closed his eyes and fell asleep. By 1 p.m., the plains were dotted with snowdrifts, each about 30 feet in width. The flat land was covered in mountains of sand-like snow, nearly impossible to walk over. In Holt County, Nebraska, Etta Shattuck was wandering the prairie alone. She had been walking for three hours and had yet to encounter another building. She was blinded by the snow, and her exposure to the negative 25-degree weather was putting her at high risk for hypothermic shock. Suddenly, Etta ran into a large mound of snow. She worried it was another snowdrift. Climbing it would drain her energy. Then she realized it was actually a pile of hay. Etta got on her hands and knees and dug her numb fingers into the snow. Soon she'd made a hole big enough to crawl into. She pulled some of the hay in behind her, locking her torso into the pile. Her legs were still sticking out, bitten by the snow, but her energy was too drained to burrow any further. By 1.20 p.m., the snow had stopped falling. But while snow was no longer falling from the sky, the 60-mile-per-hour winds still pulled powdery snow from the ground and tossed it through the air. It was still impossible to see through the flurry, and the temperature was continuing to drop. While accounts vary, one reading claimed that temperatures hit negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit during the late afternoon. Air that cold hurts the lungs severely as it's inhaled. Taking a full breath became nearly impossible, leading many victims and animals caught in the storm to suffocate. One seven-year-old witness wrote, I stuck my head around the corner of the house and nearly choked before I got indoors again. Any skin exposed at these temperatures will quickly turn black with frostbite. When the body's tissue freezes, ice crystals form in the cells. These cells fill with fluid and sometimes burst, causing blistering of the skin. Even more damage can occur when the skin is warmed again and damaged blood vessels leak fluids and proteins into the tissue. 
The extremities are the first to go because the tissue is closer to the air and less insulated. The body parts exposed to the cold turn red, then gray, brown, or even black. At that point, the affected area is unsalvageable. On the 12th, many children wandering in the cold had dressed for the fair morning weather. Light jackets, no hats or mittens. Their exposed skin had a high chance of frostbite, especially due to the moisture in the humid air. As they searched for shelter, their survival depended mainly on luck. In Fullerton, Nebraska, Minnie Freeman and her class were still wandering through the storm. She had a small child in her arms and a chain of 16 other children tied behind her. Every time one of them fell due to the harsh downdrafts, the whole group had to stop. But so far, everyone was still accounted for. During the storm, Minnie had no way of knowing how much time had passed. The whiteout felt like a dream. She had no idea where she was or which way was up. The young girl in her arms was shivering violently. Minnie tried to keep talking to her, but the girl's words were slurred. She knew that her exhaustion, slurred speech, and shivering were all symptoms of hypothermia. If she didn't get the kids out of the cold soon, they would all die. Suddenly, a building emerged from the dense white wall before them. It was Minnie's home. She ran the last few steps to the door, dragging the children behind her. Ice had frozen the door shut, but her adrenaline kicked in. In moments of high stress, adrenaline increases the heart rate, expands the lungs, and distributes blood to the muscles, allowing the body to use its maximum capacity to survive the situation. In this case, it allowed an exhausted, hypothermic schoolteacher to tear open the frozen door with her bare hands. Once they were inside, she set one older student to the task of checking hands and feet for frostbite. Many students had red, cracked, and black frostbitten skin. Their fingers were hard and rough like wood, seeming to taper to a claw at the end. The children sobbed with pain as Minnie naively tried to warm their fingers and get the blood flowing. She wouldn't have known that this could actually cause even more damage. Another student gathered and distributed all of Minnie's blankets, and Minnie started a fire in the heater. All 17 students were accounted for. They had food, water, and warmth. They were safe for now. In Lincoln, Nebraska, 11-year-old Lena Webeke was doing less well than Minnie and her students. Lena was alone and lost amid the storm. She fought against the cold wind and snow, trying to get back to the schoolhouse she had left an hour ago, but she couldn't see anything up ahead. Lena made it within a hundred yards of the schoolhouse, but trudging through the snow was too exhausting to continue. She collapsed into a foot of powdery snow, still clutching her lunch pail. Before Lena drifted to sleep, she pulled her pail to her chest, wrapping her thin coat tightly around her body. Then, everything went black. In Groton, the sleighs of school children were making their way up Main Street, where Walter Allen's family lived. 
parents waited anxiously by their doors as children jumped off and sprinted up over the snowdrifts. 18-year-old Will Allen waited by the door for his brother, but when the sleigh stopped in front of their house, Walter was nowhere to be seen. Will persuaded the men to take the sleigh back to the school. Walter must have been left behind. The men knew that if Walter had jumped off the sleigh, he had almost certainly died somewhere alone in the storm. But they agreed to help anyway. Will went with them back to the schoolhouse. He checked the classroom, but it was empty. The rescue team all agreed. Walter was a lost cause. If the cold of the storm didn't kill him, the exhaustion would soon. All they could do was go home and at least save themselves. As the sleigh pulled away, Will silently slipped off the back. He was going to bring Walter home or die trying. Will stumbled in the 60 mile per hour winds. The powerful downdraft toppled him to the ground. Then he realized the lower he was, the clearer he could see through the flurries. He continued his search on hands and knees. Soon, a crumpled figure materialized through the falling snow. It was Walter. Every inch of exposed skin was shiny red with snow blisters. Will crawled over and knelt by his brother. Walter's eyes were shut tight and sealed with ice. He wasn't moving. Will shook his brother desperately, and the eight-year-old boy made a quiet whimpering sound. It was barely audible over the wind, but it was enough to prove that Walter was still alive. Will pulled his brother into his arms. The walk back to town would be grueling, but he would get them both back safely if it was the last thing he did. When we come back, we'll discover the fates of the remaining children and discuss the lasting effects of this tragedy. Now back to the story. On the evening of January 12, 1888, a vicious blizzard was still destroying everything in its path in the Dakota territories. The storm would let up in the morning, but conditions would worsen through the night. The already below zero temperatures were expected to drop by another 20 degrees. Still stuck in her haystack in Holt County, Nebraska, Etta was beginning to lose track of time. She had no idea if she had been laying in the dark for hours or for days. She tried to peek her head out, but she realized with horror that the hay was frozen around her. She was trapped. In Groton, South Dakota, 18-year-old Will Allen was carrying his 8-year-old brother Walter through the town, and his arms were close to giving out. He just barely made it into his father's law office on Main Street before his strength gave out completely. Will was exhausted. His vision was blacking out at the edges, and he was shivering violently, all of which are symptoms of hypothermia. He worked up the strength to run next door and tell his parents he'd found Walter. Then he promptly passed out from exhaustion. Both Allen boys were in serious condition, but alive.
In Lincoln, Nebraska, at dusk, 11-year-old Lena woke up from the spot in the schoolyard where she had fallen asleep. It was a miracle she hadn't frozen to death. She pried her eyes open, tearing the frozen skin of her eyelids, and weakly sat up in the knee-deep snow. She decided to try once again to head to the ravine that would bring her home. The wind had slowed down to 45 miles per hour, making the snow flurries easier to see through, and the powdery snow on the ground had finally frozen solid. She could still barely see, but underneath her, she felt the earth begin to slope down. Her feet had found the ravine. Then, a strong gust of wind pushed her down the icy hill and sent her tumbling down the valley. She landed hard on the frozen stream. She had just enough strength to pull her head up, and in the distance, she saw a figure moving through the snow. Lena held up her lunch pail, signaling through the dim evening light. Then her hypothermia made her lose consciousness. She woke to Mr. Webeke thawing her windburned skin with cold water, a practice that the settlers thought helped restore blood flow to frostbitten skin, although we now know it's actually harmful. Despite her lasting burns, Lena survived. She was miraculously lucky. Others didn't fare so well. At 9 p.m. in Holt County, Nebraska, Etta Shattuck was still stuck in the bale of hay. She had lost feeling in her legs, which were left sticking out of the haystack. It was still negative 15 degrees Fahrenheit. Etta lay in the freezing darkness, trapped and alone, for the next 74 hours. And then, by some miracle, a farmer stumbled past and saw her legs sticking out of the stack. With the help of some neighbors, he pulled Etta out. Her exposed legs were severely frostbitten. They were a deep black color spotted with green and had to be amputated to stop the spread of the condition. But in 1888, complications from the procedure were a dangerous threat of their own. Etta went into the operating room terrified that she would never leave it alive. Having not eaten for 74 hours had weakened Etta's immune system. She survived the surgery, but her body was unable to fight off any infections she might have contracted during the operation. She died just five days later at 19 years old. Etta was not a unique case. The blizzard of 1888 only lasted for 24 hours, but it resulted in 235 confirmed casualties. Many sources estimate the death toll was closer to 500. Of those 235 confirmed victims, 213 were children on their way home from school. There's no shortage of tales of parents freezing while trying to find their children, search parties failing to bring lost children home, people bravely surviving the storm only to die days later from primitive surgeries. The biggest mistake the townspeople made that day was not prioritizing their own safety. Many victims tried to be heroes and only lost their own lives in the process. Countless farmers died trying to bring their cattle into the barns. Many died inches from the safety of their homes. In the days after the storm, 
Search parties fanned out across the plains, searching for survivors who'd become trapped in their shelters. Often, what they discovered instead were the bodies of their dead loved ones. Many bodies weren't uncovered from the ice and snow until the following spring. Just three months later, in March of 1888, a similar blizzard hit the east coast of the United States. That storm claimed 200 lives in New York City alone. Approximately 400 people died in total, and 200 ships were grounded or wrecked. This storm, coming right after the one that tore through the plains, finally changed the way America prepares for a blizzard. One factor that made the children's blizzard so lethal was the fact that no one in the plains was prepared for it. The storm came quickly and without any warning from the military officials in St. Paul. That was partially because the telegraph lines were felled by the storm and trains were stopped due to the weather. After 1888, telegraph lines moved below ground, and in areas like New York, trains were moved underground too. Architecture improved as well. New houses were insulated and made out of sturdier materials. They were built on stronger foundations, and improvements in roofing helped prevent the tops of buildings from blowing off during a storm. Over the years, technology has changed the way weather forecasts are communicated. The invention of the radio at the turn of the 20th century made it easier to send up-to-date information to the general public. However, these changes came slowly. The people of the plains had to survive many more grueling and frigid winters with what little resources they had available to them. The general tone of the plains became a much more cautious one. Parents thought twice before letting their kids leave the house during the winter months. The trauma of the blizzard wasn't forgotten. In the modern era, the danger from blizzards has largely been mitigated with Doppler radar, satellite imaging, and the ability to get all this information via the internet at any time of the day. But while predicting blizzards has become easier, the severity and frequency of storms like the children's blizzard seem to be increasing. No matter how advanced our technology can be, humans will never be able to stop blizzards from happening. The most we can do is learn from the tragedies of the past and protect ourselves when the next disaster hits. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. We'll be back next Thursday with a new episode. For more information on the children's blizzard, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Children's Blizzard by David Laskin extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Natural Disasters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. 
Sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Emily Shear, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Tim Johnson and Kate Leonard. Thank you.